Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we come to the last chapter of this, this great book that we've been in for just a little while. And once again, if you're new here or you've, this is your first, uh, first time or even second or third time here, I want to welcome you and we're glad that you're with us. And I uh, pray that you would understand and be changed by God's word. And to our people, I'm once again glad to be with you and pray that God would use it, his word this morning, as I know we will. Let's go ahead and read chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And this will be a part one of this section. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, once again, please do grab one because that's all we're going to be doing during this time is looking at God's word. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night of the, or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So what we're seeing in this section here of Scripture is the Apostle Paul write to the Thessalonian believers about the day of the Lord. He's writing to the, to the believers in Thessalonica about the day of the Lord and the suddenness of its coming. Uh, he's writing about the day of the Lord, how this day of the Lord, this coming day of the Lord should affect their lives now, should impact their lives currently the future day of the Lord should have an effect on them right now. The reality of the coming of the day of the Lord should impact how they live, should impact their lives. It should be an encouragement as they think through their not being part of it. Uh, it should be uh, also a sobering reality as to how to live their lives currently. The whole section really centers on the day of the Lord, this whole section from verses 1 through 11, and the suddenness of its coming. And that's why I've entitled this section, The Coming Day of the Lord, because that's really what the focus is. The focus is the coming day of the Lord. And so that's the reality, and that's the the focus of the Apostle Paul here in this entire section. And the reality is that it has implications for the believers' lives that he's writing to. This is pastoral. It's not just some, uh, you know, eschatological teaching with no implications on the lives. 
eschatology, meaning the, the study of future things, the future events, the coming uh, events of the Lord. It's not just some future teaching with no practical application. This is very pastoral from the Apostle Paul. He's teaching them, he's guiding them as people and believers he loves. And so let me say this as we get into this, okay? I'm just going to call out the elephant in the room. Um, this, this is the stuff that unbelievers don't want to hear. And just to make it plain, I already know that. Um, if you can tell, the whole service has been characterized by this idea of judgment, and it's heavy. Why? Well, because we're just going verse by verse through books of the Bible, right? And we just aren't going to avoid this next section. So this isn't something that we've concocted behind the scenes with our elders and then said, hey, let's teach on this to scare everybody. This is just the next passage. So this comes from God. This comes from the Lord. And I know that this is uh, to speak on judgment, to speak on wrath. That's not what anyone wants to hear. But let me tell you that if you are not a truly saved person in the room, let's talk about this implication for you, okay? I'm glad you're here. We're all glad you're here. If, if God is working in your life, drawing you to himself, if you're exploring this, I know it's not popular, not accepted, not comfortable to talk about God in his anger, in his punishment, in his judgment, or the fact that you will be held eternally accountable for your sins. That's not popular, and uh, that doesn't win the popularity contest of churches. But let me tell you that this is the word of God. This is what God wrote. And the implications embedded within this text is that God does not budge on his standards. He holds accountable those who live, those whom he created to live for his standards. He knows all fall short, and therefore he's created a way for salvation, for believers to be saved. I mean, for unbelievers to be saved. And so these are his conditions, and he wants you to be saved. But this is the end. He's giving insight and clarity and teaching to the end times. And you have to understand it does not matter whether this is popular or acceptable or it feels uncomfortable. And don't let that cloud your thinking. Don't let it cloud your thinking whether or not you're feeling comfortable currently at the moment, which you're probably not. Uh, don't let that cloud your thinking as to thinking with your emotions as to that being what matters. It does not matter. What matters is that the message comes from the authority of God's word. He's given it to us by his grace to reveal to us his truth so that in his word, he's making known to us his will so that we can know it, know him and respond accordingly. And as a faithful preacher of the Lord, of the Lord's word, I have to explain what it means what it says, and then what it means by what it says, and then therefore the implications for our lives. That's simply what we're doing here, right? You all could, could do this as well if you had enough time and the Lord called you and gifted you. I mean, you just, we're just looking at the word and saying, what does it say? What does it mean? And then what, is, what are the implications in light of what it says and means? And so I can't skip this. We're, that's why we go verse by verse through books of the Bible the entire books of the Bible as really the meat and potatoes of what we do 
here because it safeguards us, right? When we do that, it safeguards us. We're made sure that we get all the nutrients that we can from God's word. We get a balanced diet, not balanced as if we're deciding where we go, but just we're getting the whole counsel of God. And so if I skip anything, when we're going verse by verse through books of the Bible, you're all going to look at me and say, why'd we skip this? Right? So of course we're not going to do that, nor would I ever want to. But we're going to ensure that we hear what God says in that way. And it ensures that the preacher here doesn't just pick his pet topics and we'll just recycle those every five years. You're like, I think I heard that message before, right? Because I don't know what I don't know. And so I'm just, if I'm just coming from me, I'm just going to preach whatever I know, right? It's just going to come from my own thoughts. And I only have a certain amount of knowledge. But if we look at God's word, it's going to tell us things that we don't know. And so we're just going to let it dictate as we move through books of the Bible. By the way, that's how the Bible was written. It was written in books, forms. And so it, it, we don't take it in a way that's uh, uh, topical. The Bible wasn't written in a topical index form. It was written in whole books. So that's how it should be read and preached and understood within the context of these books. So I'm not going to skip it, but it's a good thing because we've got to know what God tells us about all things, including the end, including the future, including what happens after death, including what this whole thing is going to end up being, right? And how God is going to bring it all to a close. So I plead with you today, as we look at this, to embrace God's word, embrace it. Don't push it away. Respond by turning from your sin, trusting in Christ, fleeing to him for salvation, and and, and like you're running out of a burning building. Like you only have a limited amount of time because that's how this should impact you. That the building is going to come crashing down. And don't be wise in your own eyes. And don't let your feelings dictate whether or not you listen uh, just don't, don't uh, say, well, I'll just forget about this when I leave today. Don't sit back and analyze whether or not you like what's being said. Recognize that this is God's truth. It's his revelation, and he's making it known to you so that you would be saved. And for the believers who are in the room, for the church who are in Christ, Paul is directing this teaching towards believers. And so though believers are not going to be part of the day of the Lord, it should still impact the way that they live. The reality of its coming, the reality of its future uh, coming should affect the way that they live now. This has implications for the believer. If you look at the end of chapter five, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of this section in chapter five, verse 11, it says, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up just as you're doing. It should be an encouragement that you're gonna miss this judgment because of faith in Christ, but also move a little bit up back in the passage. Verse four, it says, you're not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, you're children of the light. Verse six, so then let us not sleep, keep awake and be sober. So this teaching of the day of the Lord should encourage you and it should also make you live for the Lord completely. And so this has implications for you in the present as well. So the coming day of the Lord, this is going to be in two parts, verses one through three this morning, if we can get through it. I'm not sure that we are going to. I might just cut it off at some point and we'll pick it up, but I'm going to try. And then um, 
And then part two is going to be next week, verses four through 11. Verses four through 11 are the implications of verses one through three. It's divided pretty clearly and simply. One through three is the coming day of the Lord, and verses four through 11 are its implications in the lives of the believers. And so this all centers on one topic, which is the coming day of the Lord. And so the uh, anticipation or the expectation of the event and then the application of the event. Okay, verses one through three, anticipation, verses four through 11, the uh, application. So this week, I think, really divides clearly into three focuses, and that's what we'll focus on in verses one through three, just to give you kind of uh, break points so that you can follow along with what I'm saying. The anticipation is in verses one through three, and we're gonna divide it up like this. The abruptness, verses one through two. The attitude, And then the activity, this is all regarding the day of the Lord, the anticipation of the event, the abruptness, the attitude, verse 3a, the activity, verse 3b. So all of this is wrapped up in anticipation and uh, the sub points there is how this anticipation is described. Abruptness, abruptness, verses one through two, attitude, verse 3a, and the activity, verse 3b. So we're kind of moving fluidly through these, but I want you to follow along. And then next week, we'll talk about the application for the church, for the believers. And, uh, and so let's first have clarity as we anticipate the day of the Lord. And don't worry yet if you're like, you keep saying the day of the Lord, I have no idea what that means. Um, uh, you know, can you give me some clarity? We're going to, I'm, go- I'm going to. I-, I know that you don't know yet what, what I'm talking about, but uh, hopefully you're kind of salivating to, for me to explain it to you. So don't worry, okay? You're gonna get, we're gonna get into it. Let's talk about the anticipation in verses one through three. The anticipation is kind of where we start here, what Paul starts with in verses one through three. And under that, it's the abruptness. The abruptness. And so let's cover that first subpoint: the abruptness of it, verses one through two. The abruptness of the day of the Lord. Chapter five, verse one, let me read verses one through two. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, listen, as we start this section about the day of the Lord, Follow with me, okay? As we start this section about the day of the Lord, Paul starts with this term here called, uh, and it's, the term is, is peri-day, okay? Peri-day, it's in the Greek, and it's translated now concerning, or, or, or that could be translated uh, now about, or but concerning this, or now as to this, or It could be and about this, right? Uh, Day is and or but or now and peri concerning um, or about or as to. And so this is important because once again here, Paul is clearly transitioning topics. That's really important for you to know that. It's, it's hard to see that. Oftentimes, by the way, we have great English translations. You can kind of just see it a little bit of the fog wiped off when, when you look at it in the language and have some tools to help you understand it, right? 
And it's just a frequently used term from Paul to designate a change in subject. Okay, so he's changing subjects here. Just like chapter four, verse 13, he used another common phrase when he changed subjects to the rapture. Remember when I talked about that? So here is another one, and he uses this exact same phrase often. Verses, uh, verse nine of chapter four, he used the same exact phrase. Look at chapter four, verse nine. This is Perry Day, right? It says this, now concerning... Okay, so he's changing subjects, and that's important to know. He uses this often, let's say, in 1 Corinthians, very often. And so 1 Corinthians was written the same, around the same time as this book, 1 Corinthians 7.1, Perry Day, or it translated now concerning, 7.25, Perry Day, now concerning, 8.1, Perry Day, now concerning, uh, 1 Corinthians 12.1. Same thing, 16-1, same thing. And he's just stacking topics on topic on topic. The, the Corinthians had a lot that he needed to talk about, huh? So he's addressing one thing. He's like, now let me address this. Now let me address this. Now let me address that. Hey, I got to address this. Now let's talk about this. And that's, he's just stacking subjects. So here he's doing the same thing. He's moving to a new subject. He's moving to a new topic. And he uses this exact phrase. And so this is important because... We, we need to know that he's not talking about the rapture anymore. Now, there's some overlap here, but it's important to know that he's talking about a, a new subject. Now, it's not entirely new because he's still staying in the realm of eschatology. He's still staying in the realm of future events, right? But he's moving to another specific idea or event, and it's important because you can be confused. Some people are confused by that idea that he's still on the subject of the rapture. He's not. He's talking about now something very specific, which is called the day of the Lord. The rapture, remember, the, the, uh, he turned to that subject in verse 13 of chapter 4, and obviously there had been a concern from the people in Thessalonica about the rapture. When, when Timothy, remember when Timothy went to go check on them and report back to Paul, there was a concern, and now Paul was addressing it in the writing regarding the rapture. And this is wonderful. This is pastoral. This is, this is Paul, the pastor of these people, caring enough to make clear some things about the rapture that they're, that they're kind of upset about, that they're distressed about, right? And so he doesn't want them to be without knowledge. He doesn't want them to be misled. He, and, and, and it's regarding believers who died. Remember, believers who died. And when it comes to the expectation of the rapture, and you might be confused about that, by the way, why are they concerned about believers who died and the rapture? Well, think about this. This might, this might clarify it for you, but it really actually makes a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense because Paul taught and the scriptures taught the imminence of the rapture that it was going to come and every generation would expect for it to come in their lifetime, right? I mean, and this is first generation believers. So they're expecting Jesus to come and gather his elect into heaven in their lifetime. But wait a second, believers have died. What happened? I thought we were all as the church gonna be snatched up. But there's believers who've died and Jesus hasn't come yet. 
I mean, that shows how expectant they were for Christ, his rapture to come in their lifetime. I mean, that's what was so confusing for them. I mean, they, they had no idea why believers were dying if this was supposed to come in their lifetime. And so, and so they're wondering, did we miss it? Are we in the tribulation period? They're dying and the day of the Lord is now come or coming. And so they're confused. And so, uh, and so this is how God, by the way, wants every generation to feel. He wants every generation to live like the rapture is happening in their lifetime. Why? Because it affects the way that you live. He, he doesn't want you to say, well, I know the exact time and the date, which is why he doesn't give it. So I'll just live however I want and then just make sure I get ready with enough time. It's like mom and dad, when they get the babysitter there and they say, we'll just be home at some point today. Right? I mean, the, the, can you give us the time so I can, you know, live how I want and then kind of get ready at the end? No, we'll be home at a time, a certain time, you know? And so God wants us to live in such a way, holy lives, serving him, evangelizing the lost with no break, no gap, as though he could be coming back at any moment, right? Every step of the way that we're living completely for him. That's why we don't know the day or the time. And so the rapture was clearly coming. Paul wanted them to believe. Paul even believed himself. God wants the believers to believe that this rapture is coming at any moment. And so they so much expected it to happen in their lifetime. They were wondering why believers died. And so this is, this is clear, but believers, these believers who died, Paul gives them assurance, right? that these catching away of believers into heaven, the rapture was still going to happen. And he makes clear then what would happen to the dead believers when the rapture happened, right? They're going to be snatched up with them together. Their bodies are going to meet them in the air. Those who are left still on the earth, they're going to meet them all going to go up to heaven, beam a seat of judgment, right? Where People will be, uh, all true believers will be judged based on their works. They're going to be saved, judged on their works, what they do. Silver, gold, precious jewels is going to stand the test. The ministry that the believers have done that is actually God honoring, uh, follows the word and worth it is going to stand. And what they do uh, that is meaningless and pointless and worldly is going to be the wood, hay and stubble that's going to be burned up. Uh, and so that's going to happen. And, and this is still coming. They, they haven't missed it, right? And so this is the, the great uh, help that Paul gives in this. It hadn't happened yet. And the tribulation, they're not in the tribulation. The persecution is just normal. And, um, and so now, as they think through this, They're wondering about the timing of it all. They're saying, did we miss it? Did, did these believers die indicating that we've missed the rapture? We're in the tribulation. We've not made it. We didn't qualify. The tribulation has come. When is all this happening? And so their questions about time are coming up in their minds. And this was wonderful description. As Paul finished up the description of the rapture, he says, you're not going to miss it, right? 
This is going to reverberate through the whole universe. Jesus is going to come with the voice of, uh, uh, with his voice saying, come out. And by the way, that voice of the archangel, that's not describing Jesus's voice. You can see it in the Greek. That's a separate thing. Some people ask me about that. It's Jesus's command, the voice of an archangel and a trumpet, three different things. And the reason you can know that, by the way, is because you're not going to describe Jesus's voice with a metaphor that's of lesser value. I'm not going to say Jesus with the voice of an archangel. That would be diminishing his voice. His voice is eternally more powerful than the voice of an archangel, right? His voice is commanding the dead bodies to come out. The voice of an archangel, whoever that is, possibly Mark, uh, uh, who? Michael. Michael. Yeah, that's right. And then the trumpet, right? I lost my words there. So, so this is what's happening during the time of the rapture. They didn't miss it, but now they're asking questions as to When is this all, how is this all working? Is the day of the Lord coming? And this is what now Paul is going to address. And so really what the overlap is, is really what the main concern. Look at this, verse one of chapter five. Now concerning the, what? Times. Did we miss it? Did we miss the rapture? We're we're still here. What about believers who died? Are we in the day of the Lord? Some people are thinking that. When is that going to happen? How is that all going to work? It's just... It's just moving question to question to question. And what he's now saying is, as to the time of all of it, rapture and day of the Lord included, let me just tell you, you don't need to know the time. That's what he's talking about here. So he's saying concerning, and this marks the transition, the time and the seasons. Other versions say the time, times and the epics. And this is kind of the central theme that ties us all together. In essence, when is this all going to happen? If we didn't miss it and it's still coming and we're not in the day of the Lord, well, when is that coming and and how is this all going to work? They're kind of frantic, it seems like. And this is what he's writing about at this point, right? This is what he's writing about at this point. And he says about the whole timing of it all, let me tell you something here. Right? Let me tell you something here. So now concerning the times and the seasons. Now the two words that are used here are chronos and kairos. And this is wonderful. So pay attention, okay? Chronos and kairos. And these words are used together in other places in the Bible, like Acts chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are believing he's the Messiah, and they ask, is this the time that you're going to restore Israel? Right? They kind of confused the fact that the Messiah was going to come and restore Israel at his coming. But that was his second coming. His first coming, he says, he came to seek and to save the lost. So they're asking questions about the messianic expectations, thinking it's talking about their first coming. It's really his second coming. And so they're saying, are you going to restore Israel now? And what he's saying is, no, this time now, the first coming is to seek and to save the lost. The second coming is when I will do that. But here's what they ask. Here's what they ask. Are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus responds with this. It is not for you to know the times or the what? Seasons. The times or the seasons. And, And he's talking about the future. And so these words are used when discussing future events. Times and seasons. In other words, it's not 
important for you and you're not going to know the time of these future events, when these events will kick off. But the important part is that you live in expectation because in that same passage, he's saying it's not, you don't need to know the times or the seasons, but here's what he says. But you'll receive holy uh, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, you don't need to know when this whole thing is gonna end. Just evangelize the lost right now before the end comes. So believers don't have to endure this punishment, right? So now here, listen, the chronos and the kairos refer to these end time things. And this is the end of which Jesus or Paul is referring to here. The chronos is time, meaning minutes, hours, days, months, years. It's calendar time. That's what he's saying here. How many have you, you know, have heard basically people predict the timing of the coming back of the Lord, right? I figured out the puzzle of when Jesus is coming back. No, because Jesus says that no one is going to know. And Paul says here, you don't need to know, right? As to the times and the seasons, he's about to say you have no need for any more information. So now we're looking at here what he's saying is not only the times, but also the seasons or the epics, right? When these events, listen close, in the end are going to kick off. When are these events gonna kick off? And how is this all gonna work? They're nervous about all of this. Did we miss the rapture? What happened to believers who died? Are we in the day of the Lord? How is this all working? And, and Paul is gonna say, you don't need to know the when, all you got to know is that it's, it's coming, and this should affect how you live now. You can know the details of the events, but the when is not for you to know. And so here he says this events, these epics, these seasons. In other words, when would these events kick off? And by the way, I want to take this moment because of what's being said here, the times and the seasons, to give you just a basic understanding of the order of events of the end times. I think some of us are rather confused, and we've just tried to kind of stack pieces upon that for you so you can have clarity, because the Bible is clear. Now, when it's all going to kick off, Paul says, we don't have to know more. Jesus says, nobody knows right? But we can have clarity about the events. And so let me just give you a basic overview, okay? There's so much that can be said about this, but I think to be faithful to the text here, it's important that you know the base overview of the order of events for the future. The first event is the rapture, okay? The first event is the rapture. And if you want to know the texts that specific, specifically speak to the rapture, it's John 14, 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 58, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 that we just talked about. Those are the specific rapture texts, the, the major rapture texts that you can kind of look to and say, is this, what, what part of the future is this talking about? Those are the texts that would 
tell you about the rapture. Where the rapture is that Christ, and this is the first event of the future, Christ comes from heaven suddenly to take his church to be with him. Those believers who have already died will be united with their glorified bodies. This is not preceded by any signs. This is the first event. And this is when believers will be caught up with him and then they move to the next, uh, next step, which I'm just gonna make an actual step just for clarity purpose, it's coinciding with the next event, which is the tribulation. But, but let's call number two, the Bema Seat of Judgment. So the rapture, then the Bema Seat of Judgment, as I described to you. It's to save believers in heaven where their works are judged specifically the ministry of the believers, whether they built on the foundation of Christ or, or built on some other foundation and their works are gonna be tested by God and purified. And by the way, that should motivate you, shouldn't it? Right? So you, as a believer in Christ, you will stand before God and the passage that we read just a few weeks ago Paul says, I don't want you to be ashamed when you stand with the rest of believers of the believers before the Lord and your works are judged at the beam of seat of judgment, right? I don't want you to be ashamed because the amount of works of your works that are burned up, okay? So that, that's important. And so, um, by the way, all of this so far is really clear in the timeline of the book of Revelation. I, I mean, the book of Revelation is really segmented pretty clearly, Okay, so you got rapture, bema seat of judgment, really Revelation one through five. Okay, the churches are on earth, then the churches are in heaven, right? And so you got Revelation one through five there. So next, third step, third event, on earth, coinciding with that, uh, that time frame, starts the seven-year tribulation period. All unbelievers on the earth. Uh, tribulation period, and that's Revelation 6 through 18. So you got one through five, then you got six through 18, which is the tribulation period. It's the longest section in the book of Revelation is the tribulation period, okay? And some ways this begins the day of the Lord, and I'm gonna describe that to you in a minute because the tribulation period has all these precursors in it leading up to the day of the Lord, okay? Tracking with me? Okay, so we have all unbelievers left on the earth. The believers are gone. And just for a second, imagine if all those who are filled and dwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, who take heed to the word of God, are lifted out of here. What kind of world would this be? Right? And so all the believers who have the Spirit of God inside them, who take heed to the word of God, are gone. Tribulation period is seven years and again, begins this day of the Lord, the tribulation period, two, three and a half year periods. And like I said, during this time are what's called birth pangs. And, uh, and it's leading up to the day of the Lord, okay? Described like, like someone uh, uh, pregnant and going to give birth. It's an increasing um, signs, but unaware of the time or the day or the minute or the hour until there's suddenness that comes upon that person. And then there's birth. That's how it's described. And so those, those pangs during the tribulation period will include 
Things like an Elijah forerunner, a worldwide rebellion against God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, a man of lawlessness, Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, nations gathering in the valley of decision, Joel 3, the sun and the moon growing dark, Joel 2, the rise of false teachers, Matthew 24, natural disasters, Matthew 24, uh, uh, mass death, martyrdom of, of tribulation believers. People will come to Christ during that time. God will have an evangelist there. Uh, Jewish, uh, uh, a certain amount of Jews, 144,000 will be evangelizing the lost. They'll come to know Christ. There'll be people born during that period who will come to know Christ. And so there's the martyrdom of, of tribulation believers. Uh, the gospel is preached to all nations and then is the, the day of the Lord. Okay, so, so we often think that this gospel preached to all nations is when this world will end. Um, this world will end by the rapture of Christ, right? In the sense for us as believers will be taken up. Then the tribulation period will start. During the tribulation period, that end will be as the gospel is preached to all nations. So we're not waiting for the gospel to be preached to all nations and then Christ will come rapture his church. Okay, I think people are confused about that. We're waiting for Christ to come rapture his church suddenly or we die and then starts the tribulation period, which will lead up to during that time at the very end, gospel will be preached to all nations and Christ will come back for the day of the Lord. Okay, so all of this is really de described in the section of Revelation verses uh, chapters six through 18. And a couple more New Testament passages describe this. Matthew 24, 1 through 51, I read that earlier. And even Luke 12 describes the end of this time. But during the tribulation period, as I said, some people will come to Christ. There will be an angel and a forerunner evangelizing 144,000 Jews saved, uh, evangelizing people born uh, and, and come to know Christ. But uh, these will all be, these birth pains will be the sign that this is coming to an end. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period will come the day of the Lord. And that's one of two days of the Lord. Okay, so listen, rapture, okay, beam a seat of judgment, seven-year tribulation period, day of the Lord. Okay, first of two days of the Lord. And... Um, and so that comes at the, at the end of the tribulation period and at the end of the millennium. Okay, so the day of the Lord, your New Testament passages, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, describe that to you. Luke 12, 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm not gonna say much here because we're gonna get into it as I approach it in our passage, okay? But um, it's the day of taking away unbelievers. It's always the day of the Lord always in the scripture. And there are a lot of mentions of it. 19 in the Old Testament, I think a handful, four or five in the New Testament. It's always the day of the Lord is always judgment on the wicked. 100% of the time. And so it's what's described, one taken, one left, right? That's not the rapture. That's the day of the Lord when the unbelievers are taken away. Okay, and so there's the destruction of unbelievers. It's not annihilation. It's not that they cease to exist. It's that they're put to a place of torment and punishment and judgment, temporary holding place of Hades and final dwelling place of the lake of fire. And so, 
And so this is, this is, these are the steps so far, okay? So you got rapture, you got beam of seat of judgment, you got seven-year tribulation period, and you've got day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord coincides with the second coming of Christ. This is when Christ returns, okay? Second coming, people often confuse it with what is the rapture. You kind of say second coming sometimes to refer to both. But the second coming is at the end of the tribulation period, the day of the Lord. Christ returns to earth. Unbelievers are taken away, okay? And all of that happens in Revelation 19. So you got one through five, the church is on earth. They're raptured, bema seat of judgment, six through 18. You got tribulation period, day of the Lord. And you got Revelation 19, this coming of Christ. And uh, it starts then step six, which is the millennial kingdom where Satan is bound. Believers will reign with Jesus on earth for a little, literal 1,000 years. And that's Revelation 20, one through six. So Revelation is just clearly laid out in sections. It's very, very clear in that way. Step seven, then after the end of the millennial period, you have the second day of the Lord, which is the, the second kind of judgment of unbelievers, which is the great white throne of judgment, which is when all those who are dead, everyone will be judged and they'll be separated. And that's uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And uh, that's also 2 Peter 3.10, speaks of the day of the Lord during that time. And uh, that'll be the second day of the Lord. And so at this point, Satan is released temporarily. At this, uh, at this point, at the end of the millennial reign, the earth and sky are burned up, taken away. Satan and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The time of final judgment of all dead, final dwelling place of all believers, Satan, his angel, and unbelievers then are in the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever. Okay? So I know I'm moving fast here, but I, I just want to give you a baseline understanding. Okay? You got rapture. You got bema seat of judgment. You got seven-year tribulation period. You got the first day of the Lord. You got the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And then you got the second day of the Lord, all judgment, Satan released temporarily, thrown into the lake of fire with Hades. Hades is done. No more temporary holding place of the dead. Eternal, eternal state of unbelievers in a place of torment. And, uh, and then you got the last step, step eight, which is New Jerusalem. And that's Revelation 21 through 22 that ends the book of Revelation. Okay? And, uh, and so you got the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem, God's promises to the elect number of Jews that are saved, Jerusalem restored, and all Gentile believers saved, and that will all dwell with God for all of eternity um, at that point. And so that's, that's, those are the epics. Those are the seasons. Those are the events. Again, rapture, bema seat, seven-year tribulation, day of the Lord, thousand-year reign, judgment on everybody, and eternity future, New Jerusalem. And so that, that's it. It's a pretty clear order, and you can see it divided up in Revelation. And it, I want to give you this overview of the details. These are the events. This is what's coming. There's times. When is this going to happen? And the kickoff of the events. That's what they're wondering. Did we miss the rapture? Did the, the, the believers who died, what's going to happen to them? And then 
Are we in the day of the Lord? And they're starting to ask time questions that they're aware of, that Timothy and Paul are aware of. And he's saying, regarding all of this, you didn't miss the rapture. Believers who died are gonna be part of it. Uh, you're go- everyone's gonna know. And, and you're not in the day of the Lord. It's coming, but as in, in terms of, and you're gonna miss it. You're gonna be saved through it, so don't worry about it. But as to when this is all gonna happen, don't worry about it. You don't need to know when this is all gonna kick off. You have all the information you need, which is what's gonna happen and the fact that you should live now in light of what's gonna happen. And so the application is for that particular idea is, listen, you need to understand that God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He will graciously fulfill all of his promises to believers. He will have the final victory. Unbelievers will be in a state of complete, total separation and torment. This will happen suddenly. Every generation has to believe that it could happen in their lives. And so Hebrews 3.15 is very relevant. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. By the way, you are hearing his voice because you're reading the word. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart in rebellion, Hebrews 3 says. 2 Corinthians 6 says, now is a favorable time. Now is a time in which he will listen and save you if you call out to him for salvation. Now, today is the day of salvation. Meaning you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, but right this moment, right now, you still got a chance to call out and he'll hear and save you. And so this should make you Understand that there is coming a time. You don't know when, but you know what it will entail. There are coming epics, events, seasons. God has made those clear to us. When they're going to all kick off, we don't know. But it needs to affect how we live now, which is what Paul is going to get into in this, in this section. And if you're a believer in Christ, the application is stay ready for both even though you're not gonna be part of the day of the Lord, it should affect how you live now to make sure you're not gonna be part of it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and it should make you want to evangelize the lost so they're not part of it. And you should live with expectancy for the rapture of the church. That could happen at any moment. It's going to be sudden. So look at 5.1. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have, and by the way, brothers here is, is really, it, it serves twofold. It's affectionate, but it's also a call to attention. And so as to the, when this is all gonna kick off, listen, believers, this is what he's saying. I love you, but listen, right? And here's what he says. You have no need for anything to be written to you. In other words, you don't need to know any new information than what you already know about these end events. Why? Well, here's verse two. It's an explanatory conjunction, verse two. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a, what? Thief in the night. You don't need to know when, you just need to be ready and to know what I've taught you about it. The, The key thing that you need to know is that it's gonna be sudden. You don't need any new information. You already know it's coming suddenly when no one expects it, but you don't need to know any new information about it. You're gonna miss it. You're not gonna be here for it. It should affect your life now. You're not in it but you don't need to know when about all this. 
Rapture's coming. It's gonna work out okay for you. Comfort one another with these words. And as regards to the day of the Lord, you don't need to know any more about that. You're not in it. You've missed it. Uh, you're, you're not gonna be part of it, but it's gonna come suddenly and you know what it's including, which is judgment. That's all you need to know. The suddenness of the event. Timothy must have reported this, and, uh, but they don't need to know when, right? And I'm gonna show you 2 Thessalonians 2 in a moment that's gonna help you. Why don't you turn there right now? 2 Thessalonians chapter two. Because he really expands the whole idea for a whole entire chapter. And it shows you that they were concerned that they were in it and started asking questions about the timing of it. It really, he expands this whole chapter, right? But he's, there's not gonna be any accurate predictions. So he's, he's comforting them again. Look at this, let's just read 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, that's the what? That's the rapture, right? Not to be quickly shaken. Remember, they were shaken about this whole thing, that they missed it. Or they're you know, shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or letters seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Meaning that you missed the rapture and, uh, because believers are dying and now you're in the day of the Lord. But don't be concerned about that. You already know that the rapture is gonna come and everyone's gonna know that it came and uh, the day of the Lord, you don't need to know when, but you're not gonna be part of it. Um, but uh, even these predictions, right? There's no one who's gonna predict. Verse three, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That's the tribulation period. And the man of lawlessness is revealed and the sons of destruction, the son of destruction, which I told you about, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be who? God. Do, not rem do you not remember that when I was still with you? So he, ta he taught them these, these end time things. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, by all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So that's gonna be the tribulation period in the end, the day of the Lord. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned. You might say to yourself, how are they not gonna know with all these birth pangs happening that they're in big trouble? Well, they're, God's gonna send them a delusion while at the same time, they're also blind to their sin. And I'll explain to you later, there's gonna be false prophets, there's gonna be false teachers, right? There's gonna be signs and wonders. They're gonna keep on going and, and, uh, until the end, until the day of the Lord, until they're condemned. During the tribulation period, you would think that they would, people would wake up, but they're not. So they're gonna believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had the pleasure, but had pleasure in what? Unrighteousness. Verse 13, look at this. This is the believers. But we ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved 
through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thank God that he saved us out of that, huh? And so here's... Here's what Paul is talking about here. The, the day of the Lord has clear markers. There's characteristics of the event. They're gonna be saved from it. It's gonna happen after the rapture. They're still gonna be part of the rapture. It hasn't happened yet, but they don't need to know the when of all of it. They just need to know what it's gonna consist of and it should affect their lives now to live faithfully for the Lord. They should be living with readiness with holiness, they should make sure they're in Christ, they should be evangelizing the lost, right? Because this day of the Lord is one that's coming in judgment and will come suddenly. They don't wanna be a part of it. And so this should change them, this should change them. So they don't need to know the time, but they need to understand. It's gonna come, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter five, like a what, like a thief in the, night, like a thief in the night. A thief, let me tell you this, because this is describing now the day of the Lord. A thief, does he announce when he comes? Is he going to tell the people, hey, look, don't worry. At this time, I'm going to come, okay? And I'm going to take all your stuff. No, why? Because that would be silly. People would get ready for his coming and prevent it. He's going to come, he comes when a time is unexpected. And you got the idea about it being at night. Well, it could happen actually at night. But the night here is, is still part of the metaphor. And really, people are going to be spiritually sleeping, so to speak. Like a thief in the night. When you're, people are at rest. And people think that they have gotten their way. And people are in the midst of their sin. That's going to be happening during the tribulation period. And then Jesus is going to come in judgment. You would think during that time people will be afraid. And there will be a building up to where people will be. But during that tribulation period, and this should scare you about the reality of sin. It'd be blinding. And there'll be false teachers. And there'll be pro false prophets. And so this is what it's going to be like on the earth during the tribulation period. It's going to be like a thief coming in the night where people just are sleeping. And the believers who are there will be saved. They're going to be uh, gathered, resurrected if they died in the tribulation period. But those unbelievers, which is going to be the majority of people on the earth, during that time of tribulation will be suddenly surprised by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at a time when they don't expect and be carried off away to judgment, to eternal hell. This is not a story. This is not made up. This is God making clear what his future will look like. 
And eventually Satan, his angels, Hades, and all unbelievers will be thrown into what is called the lake of fire, separated from God in a place where they will all, Satan included, be tormented for all of eternity. And so this coming day of the Lord will be surprising. It will be surprising. And so there will be another one at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, as I told you. And so the day of the Lord is, listen now, it's a technical term. And it describes this judgment. This is where we are now, chapter five, verse two. You're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief of the night. What's that day of the Lord mean? Well, I've told you a lot about it already. But this is always judgment. Listen, it's always wrath on the wicked. It's always a day of vengeance for the Lord. Always. Where they're judged, they're cast into everlasting torment. Now you have to understand, as you see those 19 Old Testament appearances that I told you about, there's like this interplay between historical and eschatological day of the Lord. And it's, it's, you see it. It's like there's this historical coming nearness of judgment on people that is not the future day of the Lord, but pictures it. Like the Babylonian captivity or, you, you know, the coming of the nations. And the Old Testament speaks of that like a day of the Lord, but it's in a historic way that kind of pictures the future of the final fulfillment of the actual day of the Lord. And so we get just kind of glimpses from just a historical way in which that term is being used as to the reality and what's gonna come of that future day of the Lord. And so there's like an imminent judgment like Zephaniah 1, again, ascribing the Babylonian captivity, but it also predicts the future day of the Lord. And so this historic picture of the day of the Lord gives us insight. It doesn't contain everything that happens in the final day of the Lord, but it gives us this tension. And so let me just give you a few Old Testament references that give us clarity about this future day of the Lord. I've kind of referenced to you all the New Testament ones, but Amos 5, 18 through 20, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness? Zephaniah 1, 14 through 15, the great day of the Lord is near. It's hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and and thick darkness. Joel 2, 1 through 3, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There is like has never been before, nor will be again uh, after them. 
Though the years, uh, through the years for all generation, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. Nothing will escape them. Malachi 4, for behold, the day, of, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise and healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And so the Old Testament pictures this coming day of the Lord. Some of it is interplaying with this imminent judgment that's coming upon God's people in that historical setting, and it points us to the eschatological setting. But the clarity from all of Scripture is that this is judgment on the wicked. The New Testament helps us to see that it will be a time when they are taken away and thrown into everlasting torment. And so let me just touch on these last two points. We're almost done here, okay? I knew we were going to have to get through this. Um, but let me just touch on these. Look at now the attitude because these kind of go in, coincide and you, and you can see here how, how scary this is. Verse three, while people are saying what? There is peace and security. People during the tribulation period leading up to the day of the Lord will be saying there is peace and security. While the day of the Lord is coming upon them, they're going to be saying, there's peace, there's security, right? And you say, how in the world? Well, I already told you, there'll be blindness, the believers will be gone, they think God is gone, we can do whatever they want. Second Thessalonians 2 tells us that there's this strong delusion, there's these false prophets, but it's just like it was in the book of Isaiah. There, these, these, these false prophets are fashioning these idols and they're telling the people around them, they're good, they're good. They don't talk, they don't heal, they can't do anything. God's warning us through these prophets to repent of our sin, but don't worry, these idols, they're good, they're good. It's all gonna be okay. And that's gonna be the same attitude during the tribulation period. The false teachers and the false prophets will say, don't worry. You know, all these things are happening. Destruction is, the, the, the labor pains are building. It's, it's gonna be okay. And these people are gonna claim to represent God. Just turn to Isaiah 47 for just a moment. Isaiah 47. I think I'm gonna end this thing here and pick back up next week in this part, because we need to spend a little time on it. But let me just show you this. Isaiah 47. We'll add one more week to this and then we'll cover verses, verse three really next week and then we'll move into um, four through 11 the following week. Look at verse 10, Isaiah 47, verse 10. This will, this will be the picture. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. 
Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. That will be the attitude during that time. They're gonna say peace and safety. And uh, I wanna pick up here next week in this verse, verse three, and we'll describe this idea of what's happening here in the people's attitudes, saying peace and safety while these birth pangs are happening because we can see a little bit of picture of this in other places in the Bible, and I think it's a good idea to look at it. And then we'll move into 4 through 11 the following week. So what do we do with this? What we saw is that there's a coming day of the Lord. There's an anticipation of the day of the Lord. No one is going to know when, no one knows and will or will know when this is all going to kick off. No one knows the time or when these events will kick off. We know about the events. But all we need to know is that they're coming. And the believers, you should be comforted that you won't be part of it, but it should make you, make you live in a sober way, reality. If you're an unbeliever in the room, listen, this will be your future. This will be your future. I'm not making this up. This is just the next section in the scriptures. God is making this clear by his grace. This will be your future. If you're not left during the tribulation period and experience the day of the Lord, there you'll already be in eternal torment. One way or the other, you're going to that place of eternal fire unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I beg you to, to look at this reality of this coming judgment, not to push it away, but to respond and to have salvation. And if you're a believer in the room, like I said, it should bring you comfort. Man, I'm gonna be taken before any of this happens. And I'll come back and be with Christ and I'll make it through all those judgments and be on into that new Jerusalem forever. What a comfort. But at the same time, should make you live with this sober reality to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to prove that you're in the Lord and you're living and to evangelize the lost around you that you love so that they're not a part of this. So we'll pick it up next, next week. Let's pray. Father, we come. I ask that you would do this great work in us and through us, through your word, by your grace, just use your word uh, to change us and to affect us. Don't let us forget about these truths as we leave today. In Jesus' name, amen.